The Mark Stein Show. And now, here's Mark. News, news, news. The big news of recent days. Oh, let me see. Uh, Got to be the death of the great 60s pop singer, Wayne Fontana. This was a lovely record of his. Pamela, Pamela. Pamela, Pamela, remember the days of inkwells and apples and books and school plays. Wayne Fontana, Pamela, Pamela. Oh, wait a minute. Maybe he mispronounced the whole song and it's meant to be Pomela, Pomela. Her name is pronounced comma like the punctuation mark la, Kamala. Okay? okay. Seriously, I've heard every sort of bastardization. Okay. So what? That's how it is, uh, Kamala. Okay. okay. Well, but that's, I think that's, it's out of respect for somebody who's going to be on the national ticket. Pronouncing her name right is actually okay. not, it's kind of a So I'm minimum. disrespecting her by mispronouncing her name unintentionally. So it begins. You're not allowed to criticize Kamala Harris or Kamala Harris or whatever no, because no, no, Kamala, Kamala Harris. Whatever. I've been there. 12 years ago, I was guest hosting for Hannity and got upbraided on air by Bob Beckel, big Democrat campaign guy, uh, paid his hooker by personal check, which I've always thought was a, a rather touching gesture. Uh, Bob Beckel, not on telly anymore, had to be escorted from the building for making a racist remark to a staffer. Anyway, I was in for Hannity and Bob upbraided me for mispronouncing uh, Barack Obama's name. The funny thing is Barack Obama mispronounced his name exactly the same way I did until he was 30 or so. He was Barry as a kid and then as a grown-up Barack in the British fashion, and then he decided he preferred Barack uh, because it sounded more exotic. This would be around the same time his publisher's bio started saying he was born in Kenya. Never forget that the original Bertha was uh, Barack Barrack himself. Anyway, everyone in uh, Colin Powell's family calls him Colin in the British fashion. Uh, but Colin could never get Americans to do likewise, so eventually he decided to live with the colon. Hey, colon and comma. Uh, maybe Powell and Harris should run on an all-punctuation ticket. Kamala, Kamala, remember the... Anyway, remember the way you say it, Kamala. If in doubt, uh, check with her running mate, Joe Biden. That's what I asked Kamala. That was his third take. The first time he said... That's what I asked Geraldine Ferraro. And the second time he said, that's what I asked John C. Calhoun. Anyway, speaking as a Canadian, it's great to have another British subject on the ticket for the first time since Barack Obama. In the words of Canada's first prime minister, Sir John A. Macdonald, a British subject, I was born and a British subject, I shall die. Instead of the son of a British subject from Kenya, uh, we now have the daughter of British subjects from Jamaica and India. Gee, it's almost like the revolution never happened. But if I were what Ann Coulter calls a foundational black American, that's not foundation in the Rachel Dollars all sense, but a black American who's 
family has been here since the dawn of the Republic. Um, as Anne says, we talk about nothing else but slavery, 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 slavery. Uh, the 1619 Project says that slavery is the be-all and end-all of American history. But we're now about to have our second black president who's nothing to do with the black American story. So in addition to getting screwed over by white privilege, uh, they're now getting screwed over by black British Commonwealth privilege. It's an odd thing to say when Chicago's magnificent mile is aflame. But truly, at least when it comes to the Democrat ticket, the forbearance of black Americans is remarkable. Now, I have no use for Kamala Kamala. Uh, just on my bedrock issue, which is freedom of speech, the world is living through the weirdest year. Two-thirds of a million people are dead uh, from the Chinese Communist Party's Kung Flu. Every Western economy except Sweden's has been crippled by official reaction to the Chai Com's Kung Flu. Untold millions around America and the world have lost their jobs and their savings because of Chairman Xi's Kung Flu. And the only contribution America's president-in-waiting has to offer has been a Senate resolution condemning the use of the term Kung Flu as racist. It is the minimum requirement of a free society that its citizenry be permitted to be rude about totalitarian butchers whose machinations have killed granny. Like most of today's Democrats, Kamala Kamola is no friend of free speech, which means uh, it is necessary, alas, to sing this over and over. Oh, 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 oh. The middle of August in the summer of stupid. From my mispronunciation to yours. Special Kung Fluella Harris edition. Everybody was Kung Flu fighting. Those stats climbed fast as lightning. It was a little bit frightening. Chai comes of expert timing. There were funky Chinamen from funky Wuhan town. They were chopping bats up, they were chowing them down. But you can't say that, no sir, or so says Kamala. A pronouncer as Kamola, it's an easy way to troll her. Everybody starts mispronouncing. Kamala Harris. Kamala Harris. Kamala's name that trouncing. Kamala Harris. Kamala Harris. to see her flouncing. Kamala. Oh, Fat Joe's next announcing. That's what I asked Kamala. Comma, like the punctuation mark luck. Okay, okay. That's enough of that. Indeed, this isn't an all Kamala show, but it is, uh, as we'll get to later, a semi Kamala, semi Kamala show. This is my least favorite time in the quadrennial cycle of American life because every morning I wake up to demands from listeners, readers, viewers wanting to know why I haven't commented on some burning issue at the moment. 
And the reason I haven't is because it'll be entirely forgotten in 20 minutes and some other bit of transient piffle will have come along. And I would play the game if it were effective. But it's actually cost conservatism almost the entire culture. Uh, here's my quote-unquote cause. I'm interested in the preservation of Western civilization because it built the modern world and I don't think my kids will like what comes after. So I'm interested in so-called conservative politics to the extent that dragging the pitiful Canadian or UK conservative parties across the finish line at least buys a little time when it comes to our entire civilization sliding off a cliff. Because these wretched squishes apply the brakes ever so slightly so that you're heading toward the cliff in third gear. Uh, and that's great news only because the alternative is flooring it over the edge uh, as you are with Justin Trudeau or Jeremy Corbyn or Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez or Ilan Omar. My expectations are no greater than that. Mrs Thatcher, by the way, hated this kind of politics, the ratchet effect. Uh, as she used to call it. That wasn't enough for her. She actually wanted to change direction and drive away from the cliff edge. But she was a rarity. In 2016, Donald Trump also indicated that on immigration and China and manufacturing and much else, he too wanted to drive away from the cliff edge. Let me tell you the news stories I most loathe. They come along every day. But I'll just give you a couple of examples from the uh, from the last fortnight or so. The this is the first one. The Federal Fish and Wildlife Service has just wrapped up this year's Latino Conservation Week. There's something for every age level to enjoy, from face painting tutorials to interviews with local Latinx conservationists. Latinx. Here's the tweet from the US Fish and Wildlife Service. To kick off Latino Conservation Week, we want to help clarify the term Latinx, which is a gender-neutral alternative to Latino and Latin. Latinx is bollocks. In fact, it's woke Anglo-supremacist bollocks imposing a, a linguistic construction that is totally alien to Spanish. Nevertheless, it appears to be official policy at U.S. Fish and, Life, Fish and Wildlife, which is to say it's official policy of the Trump administration. Here's another story. The federal government's premier nuclear research lab, Sandia National Laboratories, uh, if you're wondering what they do, they design America's nuclear weapons. And uh, they hosted a three-day re-education camp for white males with the goal of uh, bringing to light their white privilege and deconstructing white male culture. It was a mandatory training course for the white men's caucus on eliminating racism, sexism and homophobia. Is homophobia a big problem in nuclear research? Well, apparently sufficiently so that white men have to attend courses on deconstructing it at the top federal nuclear lab, which is to say again, the Trump administration. Now, when I say that, I'm not blaming Trump. 20-something years ago, late at night and very well lubricated, I was berating Mrs. Thatcher for not doing something about some education issue or other. And she said, when was this? And I gave her the year and month 
And she said to me rather icily, I'll think you'll find I was busy with the Falklands War that month. Obviously, Trump is busy with the pandemic and China and the economic slough of Despond. But these secretaries and deputy secretaries and deputy assistant undersecretaries are his appointments in his administration, supposed to be implementing his policy, and they're promoting exactly the same bollocks they'd be promoting if Hillary had won or Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez. And if... if Four years into the Trump administration, you can't sufficiently turn the Titanic so that you're at least not promoting nonsense like Latinx or nuclear homophobia. How do you think you're ever going to avoid hitting that bloody iceberg? And these aren't two of the obviously squishy endeavours of big government, the touchy-feely stuff. We're talking fish and wildlife, the great outdoors, man and nature, and nuclear science has in dropping the big one, mushroom clouds over Hiroshima and Nagasaki. That's the only language the enemy understands. And these activities are as totally hollowed out by industrial strength, woke wankerization as anywhere. So why be surprised then because this is just on the sort of periphery, uh, unless you're in this nuclear lab having to do your mandatory homophobia course isn't a big deal, unless you're uh, actually excited about Latino Conservation Week. It's not a core priority of government. But all this stuff leads to what happened at the State Department on Wednesday when it totally gutted the president's proclamation banning admissions of foreign workers because of the economic damage done by the lockdown. Now, Mike Pompeo is supposed to be one of the better members of the administration, but he was off doing the lambada uh, over a f foaming stein of beer in the Czech Republic or somewhere. Um, so the president... The president can proclaim what he likes, as he did in this proclamation, and then the permanent bureaucracy issues seven pages of exceptions to his proclamation that, in effect, make it a complete waste of however many man-hours the chief magistrate devoted to crafting his proclamation. Uh, upshot, at a time when millions and millions of Americans are out of work because the government shut them down as non-essential, a president who campaigned on an anti-immigration platform still can't impress his will on immigration on the permanent bureaucracy. So even with a Trump, not a Martha McSally, not a David Cameron, not an Andrew Scheer, but even with a Trump, you can't impress your will on the bureaucracy, even on the most fatuous crap like Latinx fish and game management and nuclear homophobia. OK, so it's now election season. And because of half a century of demographic transformation and social engineering, we're approaching the point of no return. So we're told we have to give money to Martha McSally because she's seven and a half points down against Mark Kelly in the Arizona Senate race. And we need her so that Mitch McConnell will have the votes for the next rock-ribbed originalist like Neil Gorsuch. I apologise to non-Americans who don't know who any of those four people are. In a healthy society, nobody would know who those four people are. So what is Martha McSally doing with the money you give her? Well, well, the Democrat, she's up against Mark Kelly. He's an astronaut, interesting CV, compelling personal story. The worst kind of candidate to have to run against, particularly when you're a squish who doesn't believe in anything. 
He was also a pitchman for Breitling, the watchmakers, because he wore their watch in space and liked it. So back on Earth, he'd go to Breitling events and they'd take photographs of him wearing their products and standing next to leggy models in a appealing garb, or as HuffPost, Huffington Post puts it, scantily clad women. They don't strike me as scantily clad. Uh, certainly not in Arizona, where it's 115 degrees right now. Uh, their only pictorial evidence of the scantily cladness shows two young ladies in sober navy blue short-sleeved dresses above the knee, but no cleavage. They look like air stewardesses before America's woeful carriers decided to opt for surly harridans in shiny stretch pants and the least style-conscious gay men on the planet as their cabin crews. Nevertheless, Martha McSally's communications director, Caroline Anderegg, whom you pay for. Martha McSally uh, can only afford a communications director because American conservatives give her the money to hire one. So the McSally campaign and its communications director and all the other lavishly remunerated staff think that Mark Kelly's participation in this, quote, blatantly sexist marketing campaign proves that he believes in, quote, the objectification of women. Is there a single Mark Kelly voter who's going to switch to Martha McSally over this, particularly when Martha McSally is running on a ticket with a president who has spent his entire life in the company of leggy supermodels. Normal persons don't care about Mark Kelly standing next to a 1960s trolley dolly. And after the last three months, normal persons are revolted by cancel culture about a world in which you make one misstep and you're over. I loathe the professionalization of American politics, because this is what the professionals think is clever. Last time round, Trump was up against Jeb Bush, who had a hundred million bucks and Mike Murphy and a hammerlock on TV commercial airtime. And a fat lot of good it did him. Trump took him out with an adjective, low energy Jeb. Low energy Jeb. Is it me or is it Trump who seems a little low energy this time round? His campaign's being run by a super liberal who happens to be his son-in-law, and he's surrounded now by the consultant industrial complex, all the grifters and finger-in-the-windy focus group types he pissed all over last time. So Trump's now announcing as a priority for his second term a capital gains tax cut. OK, OK, we know, you know, that's important to certain people, even if they're not the people you need at the polling booths in Wisconsin and Michigan. Uh, like all the Republicans going on about all the people uh, Kamala Harris locked up as Attorney General of California. Gee, given what's happening on the streets of American cities right now under all those Democrat mayors, let's do the Biden-Harris campaign's marketing for them and start promoting them as the tough-on-crime ticket while Jared persuades his father-in-law to run on letting more prisoners out of jail. Why is US Fish and Game promoting Latinx rubbish? Why is a federal nuclear lab raising awareness of homophobia? Because the American right never fights for any of the turf that matters. Another old line of mine. When the Democrats win, they're in power. When the Republicans win, they're in office. And those bureaucrats at Fish and Game and the State Department well understand that. That's what happens when you lose the culture. 
That's what happens when you only think in terms of one Tuesday every other November. Tales for our time, songs of the week, and of course, the Mark Stein Show. Stein Online is your one-stop shop for all things Stein. Members of the Mark Stein Club have access to the full catalog of Stein content, transcripts, and discounts, as well as the opportunity to ask Mark questions and engage with other club members in our comments section. Join the Mark Stein Club today by heading to www.steinonline.com. That's www.steinonline.com. Mark Stein's Poem of the Week. Pamela, Pamela, Kamala, 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 Kamala. One way to fix it in your head is to remember other famous Kamalas. There's a Hindu goddess of that name, and also one half of the two most famous feral children in the British Empire back in the 1920s, Omala and Kamala, two sisters from Bengal supposedly raised by wolves until they were discovered by a clergyman. Poetry-wise, the work I'd love to bring you is by the Indian nationalist Veer Savaka, who was a man of action. In fact, he was charged as a conspirator in the assassination of Gandhi, but acquitted for lack of evidence. When the authorities in England put him on a boat back to India, he escaped through the porthole when the ship put in at Marseille, but was uh, recaptured. So a man of action, but also a man of words, a poet. And when he was imprisoned on the Andaman Islands, where the international airport is now named after him, uh, Veer Savakar wrote many poems in the Mahathi language, scratched on his cell walls, including the epic work Komala. But I have never seen a proper English translation. If you know of one, uh, I'd love to hear about it because uh, all I've ever seen is only uh, what is, uh, I think, a rather flat uh, literal translation and uh, doesn't really capture the character of the form of Mahathi poetry. Colours of love turn bloody red and the garden of flowers is set on fire. Oh, my blossoming bacula, your fragrance is in vain. Oh, Kamala, your cries are in vain and your beloved disappears. The royal beds are set on fire and dreams turn into truth. Will, uh, will Kamala's cries be in vain or will her dreams turn into truth. Anyway, until a proper translation of that uh, work, epic work from Veer Savarkar's incarceration in Andaman jail, scratched on his cell walls, until a proper translation of that comes along. Here's a couple of poems from one of India's leading poets in English of recent years. Kamala Das, who late in life converted to Islam and became Kamala Suraya. Uh, this poem might come in useful for Kamala Harris if Joe Biden gets out of the basement and starts sniffing her hair. First published in 1967 in the collection uh, The Descendants by Kamala Das the Maggots. At sunset on the river ban, Krishna loved her for the last time and left. That night in her husband's arms, Radha felt so dead that he asked, What is wrong? Do you mind my kisses, love? 
And she said, no, not at all, but thought, what is it to the corpse if the maggots nip? And this one is a famous poem about eunuchs. Obviously, in the West, we don't have eunuchs, uh, unless you count the doting courtiers of the American media. So, first published in the 1965 anthology Summer in Calcutta, The Dance of the Eunuchs. It was hot, so hot, before the eunuchs came to dance, wide skirts going round and round, cymbals richly clashing, and anklets jingling, jingling, jingling. Beneath the fiery gulmohar, with long braids flying, dark eyes flashing, they danced and they danced, oh, they danced till they bled. There were green tattoos on their cheeks, jasmines in their hair. Some were dark, and some were almost fair. Their voices were harsh, their songs melancholy. They sang of lovers dying and of children left unborn. Some beat their drums, others beat their sorry breasts and wailed and writhed in vacant ecstasy. They were thin in limbs and dry, like half-burnt logs from funeral pyres. A drought and a rottenness were in each of them. Even the crows were so silent on trees, and the children, wide-eyed, still, all were watching these poor creatures' convulsions. The sky crackled then, thunder came, and lightning and rain, a meagre rain that smelt of dust in attics and the urine of lizards and mice. A poem from me to you by Kamala Das, Kamala Saraya, in later years, The Dance of the Eunuchs. The fiery Golmoha, by the way, is a poinciana, so a fiery red. Uh, the smell of dust in attics and the urine of lizards, well, I think I'd almost prefer lizard urine to the variety that is palpable and pungent on the most luxurious boulevards of Midtown Manhattan and other American cities right now. Mark's mailbox is on the air. Adam, a first hour founding member of the Mark Stein Club from Thornhill, Ontario. And still with us in our fourth year, Adam writes, it will be interesting to see how a constitutional crisis pans out when the constitutional system has no legitimacy. I think the word we may all be grasping at is revolution. If the election is contested and the decision gets punted to the Supreme Court, America may not experience a reprise Bush versus Gore, but rather a 21st century version of King versus Parliament. With the added uncertainty that England was already a nation state by the time Charles I met his unfortunate end, not a polyglot society running a global empire of position with an entrenched deep state of uncertain motives and powers. Even if Trump wins beyond the margin of lawyer, it is hard to see the situation improving to any degree. If anything, it just means that a triumphant totalitarian left will face an easier time mopping up when Trump is term-limited in 2024. I hope this silent majority is waking up, 
making these doomsday scenarios less likely. If not, we are in for a world of hurt in the coming decade. Lots of good points there, Adam. I didn't enjoy Bush versus Gore 20 years ago, but as a general proposition, I'd trust the Rehnquist court over the Roberts court any day. And when you bring up King versus Parliament, yes, that's a serious dispute, except that neither party had fundamentally incompatible visions of society. Uh, beyond uh, their own status and the balance of powers within it. I mean by that, uh, with respect to poor old uh, King Charles, I mean that they didn't revile the entirety of their national history. They didn't believe in open borders. They didn't mandate in grade school that the majority of the population be taught to loathe and revile itself and be ashamed of their uh, accomplishments. King and Parliament can reconcile. With America's present division, I don't think that's possible. One side or the other has to lose decisively. As to 2024, I get emails from people saying, oh, what about Don Jr. or Eric Trump for president? And uh, from my limited acquaintance uh, with uh, both of them, they're perfectly pleasant fellows. But this is not serious uh, in a self-governing republic. Trump is an extraordinary figure. And he was necessary in 2016 because none of the non-extraordinary figures could raise certain issues like immigration and take the heat. Um, and that's the conditions we need to create where uh, non-extraordinary figures can raise these issues and take the heat. Because the point about once-in-a-lifetime figures is that they don't come along every four years. Um, as I mentioned, when Margaret Atwood and Martin Amis and J.K. Rowling and Salman Rushdie and all the other literary lovers sent their letter to Harper's the other day... We're watching these people shift very, very slowly, slower than molasses. Uh, some of them I know, I know they're moving, but they're moving too slowly. So the biggest challenge, if we want to preserve this world, is to figure out a way to persuade them, particularly persons of influence like J.K. Rowling, the biggest challenge, if we want to preserve this world, is to figure out a way to persuade these guys to move further, faster. Mark Stein's Last Call. If you looked very carefully, you'll know there were two Kamalas in the news this week, although one of them was a Kamala. James Harris grew up in Coldwater, Mississippi, where life could be very cold indeed. I never knew my father. He got killed in a dice game, shooting dice. No, I didn't graduate from school. I'm a ninth grade dropout. James was four when his dad never came home from that dice game. Mr. Harris's absence left his widow and children impoverished, so James became a sharecropper and also a burglar. 
until the police suggested he might like to leave town. He took the hint and drifted around until he decided to train as a wrestler. Professional wrestling is all about the persona, and James Harris went through several generic ring characters, Superfly, Sugar Bear, the Mississippi Mauler, before he hit the one that stuck. Six feet nine inches, 385 pounds of Kimala, the Ugandan giant. This is Kamala. Kamala, the Ugandan giant. Kamala, the Ugandan giant. One of the great gimmicks of all time, and and nobody else could have done it like that because he embraced it. He did. With his bare feet, war paint, leopard print, loincloth, African mask, a spear and sword, Kamala was supposedly a ferocious but simple-minded Ugandan who was discovered while working as a bodyguard for Idi Amin. He couldn't speak any English, which is odd because to get a job with Idi in Kampala, you'd certainly have had to speak it. But let's not get hung up on details. On some nights, the announcer couldn't even get the name of the country right. In the ring at this time... From Ugandia, the Ugandian giant. He told me, sir, I got this gimmick for you. This uh, big black guy from Uganda. <laughs> I've never been to Uganda. Not only did he never visit Uganda, it's not clear he could have afforded the airfare. The peak of Kamala's career came in a six-month series of matches for the WWF in the mid-80s with Hulk Hogan. Fans loved it, and Hulk, who paid attention to these things, made a fortune. Kamala's deal was nowhere near so lucrative, and as his health declined, the Ugandan giant could have used a few giant-sized paychecks. He liked songwriting, and so he wrote songs about his low pay, which made him even less pay, because he would have been better to hire a guy who did something about the problem. Instead, he found himself with the worst kind of celebrity, famous but impoverished, and then famous, impoverished, and sick. In 2011, his left leg was amputated. Six months later, he lost his right. She had told me before the answer, body parts, you're going to start losing body parts. I didn't believe that. When I came home, I would look down and I would cry a little bit. And, uh, I figured, I'm not normal anymore. I'm sorry, but I'm not normal anymore. And people are going to treat me like I'm not normal. By now, he was living off a disability check and asking fans for donations to cover his medical bills. On one of his last trips to the dialysis clinic, he picked up the COVID and was dead four days after diagnosis. In a final indignity, he wasn't even the biggest Kamala in the day's news cycle. The end of James Kamala Harris was all but obliterated by the rise of Senator Kamala Harris, dead of the Chinese coronavirus at the age of 70, Kamala, the Ugandan giant. I don't want people to feel sorry for me because I'm still Kamala. I will always be Kamala. 
1965, Jorge Vallejo and his family joined the great exodus from Castro's Cuba to Florida on a raft through a tropical storm. They settled in Hialeah, where Jorge founded a whole dynasty of doctors. The Vallejos are a family of doctors. There are 20 MDs, dentists, and medical students in the family, including Charlie Vallejo Jr., who's doing his residency in internal medicine. Just like firefighters put their life on the line going into fires, we do the same thing going into hospitals. It's whatever it takes to heal and save your patients. George Vallejo delivered eight of his nine grandchildren. His patients included the Queen of Salsa, Celia Cruz, and in 1992, the smallest surviving baby ever born in the United States, entering the world after just 22 weeks and weighing under a pound. Baby Zasha is now, thanks to Dr. Vallejo, uh, 28 years old. It made me feel close to God, Dr. George said of the experience. His son, Carlos, Charlie, had spent the last few months tending to some 76 patients with COVID-19. Somewhere along the way, he and then four other members of his family contracted the Chinese virus. Charlie and George were hospitalized on the same day. The father lasted six days. The son struggled on for six weeks. Among the many babies George Vallejo delivered was a granddaughter who had to report on her own family's loss. COVID-19 has taken a heavy toll on one of our CBS4 News colleagues. Reporter Jessica Vallejo has lost her grandfather and her uncle to COVID-19. It's not just statistics. Like now, I always know it's a life and it affects the family. So it's very hard when I'm reporting or doing a story on a COVID patient and that's why I try to empathize with that patient or that family to see if how they feel because I mean my family feels broken. Dead of the Chinese coronavirus at the ages of 89 and 57, Dr. George Vallejo and Dr. Charlie Vallejo. When life hands you lemons, make a lemon serenade. Of all Trini Lopez's early hits, that's my favorite. His is by far the least worst version of If I Had a Hammer. Uh, but as I've said before, I can't get beyond James Lilac's reaction. If I had a hammer, well, what's stopping you? They were buck 79. Uh, Trini Lopez was the usual overnight success. How did you start and where? Uh, I started in Dallas, Texas about uh, 11 years ago. Taking that long, you are not an overnight uh, happening. Uh, I'm afraid not, no. Trini, we wish you Godspeed.
they do fine and then they fade. And then there are those that for some peculiar combination of singer and song linger across the decades, as La Bamba did. It got Trini Lopez on the same bill as the Fab Four. Well, uh, I was in uh, Paris with the Beatles at the Olympia Theatre. Were you playing on the same bill? Yes, we were in the same bill. Oh boy, what, what was it like? Uh, it was wild. Was it like they say it is? Uh, yeah, it was, uh, I couldn't believe it. And uh, the Beatles are uh, very nice boys. I like them very much. Are they, are they, uh, <laughs> well, they have a few friends here, aren't they? Are they noisy or are they quiet when they're not working? Uh, they're they're uh, real wild. They're always joking around and planning around, you know, and uh, just uh, having a good time. Unless you're the Beatles, that kind of pop stardom doesn't last. But Trini Lopez had other skills. Gibson Corporation. They wanted me to design a guitar. So I designed a, a, a rock and roll model for the kids, and it ended up... Uh, that all the young, the young musicians in, in, the, in the world, and they started playing it. And to this day now, I have people like uh, Sting's guitar player, he plays my guitar. Foo Fighters, David Grohl plays my guitar. Paul McCartney's uh, Wings, his guitar player, plays my guitar. You the too. Edge. The yeah. Edge, uh-huh. Uh, Bono, his guitar player, also plays my guitar. Maroon 5 and on and on. Boom, boom. Gonna get along without you now Boom, boom Boom, boom Gonna get along without you now Oh, I always liked his version of this song Got along without you Before I met you Gonna get along without you now Gonna find somebody twice as cute Cause you didn't love me anyhow I lost my money and I lost my pride Didn't have much money but I really tried It made you happy when you made me cry And you broke my heart so I said goodbye Boom, 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 boom Gonna get along without you now Boom, 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 boom Gonna get along without you now Ah, but we're going to have to get along without him now. Dead of the Chinese coronavirus at the age of 83, Trini Lopez. I always like to record songs that, that I can uh, put my own spin on the songs. I, I don't do the song the way they, it was written. I never have done that. Smile though your heart is aching Smile even though it's breaking When there are clouds in the sky you'll get by If you smile through your fear and sorrow Smile and maybe tomorrow You'll see the sun In 1981, I, I really got bored with traveling so much. I was traveling around the world like crazy. And I decided to, to kind of semi-retire. And I uh, didn't do anything for 28 years. So a lot of people think that I am dead. That's the time you must keep on trying Smile, what's the use of crying? You'll find that life is still worthwhile I still have a long future ahead of me Just smile And I think I'm singing better than ever Smile though your heart is aching Smile even though it's breaking When there are clouds in the sky you'll get by a father and a son, both doctors, had lost their lives to COVID-19. 
So I think my family is a perfect example of what doctors should be. They were both doctors beloved by their patients and their family. Light up your face with gladness. Hide every trace of sadness. Although I tear may be ever so near. I mean, I can't picture life without Charlie. He was my double uncle, my godfather, but another dad. You'll find that life is still worthwhile if you just smile. 397 pounds. The Ogandian giant. Kamala. When there are clouds in the sky, you get by if you smile through I never did dream of being in a rest. I never did want to be arrested. And I had a few ups and Lord knows how many down. That's the time you must keep on trying. Smile, what's the use of crying? You'll find that life is still worthwhile if you just smile. Dr. Charlie Vallejo or Dr. George Vallejo. Ladies and gentlemen, Trini Lopez. Charlie Chaplin's lovely tune, Jeffrey Parsons and John Turner's perfectly fine words, arranged and produced by the great Don Costa for Trini Lopez. We will have a last call special for you on Sunday. I'll be back this evening with our latest tale for our time, my contemporary inversion of The Prisoner of Zender, in which this time round the Ruritanian has to sub for the English fellow. It's careering toward its climax. Uh, Kathy Shadle's movie date is on for Saturday. Don't miss it. Uh, also, our song of the week for Sunday. Stay safe, stay free. Join us next time for another edition of The Mark Stein Show. The Mark Stein Show is a production of Mark Stein Enterprises and Oak Hill Media. reserved.